this is the word of the Lord, took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Leshuim and Lethimin or Luminin, sorry. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephir and Hanak and Ibadah and Eladah. All these were sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. Uh, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he gathered, he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave, in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zorah, the Hittite facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived in Beer Lahai Roy. Verse 12. These are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, by their names, in the order of their birth, Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbil, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hedad, and Tima, Jetur, Napish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled in Havilah, to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all of his relatives. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would be with us now as we once again consider the book of Genesis. Teach us all that you intend to teach us by your word, Lord. Give to us listening ears, minds that understand, and hearts that believe. Lord, I decrease so that you can increase. Be glorified in Christ's name, we pray, and for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, when we last considered the book of Genesis, we saw a great love story. Not the love between Isaac and Rebekah, but rather the love between God and his people. We saw the providential faithfulness of God in providing a wife for Isaac and thus confirming to an increasingly aging Abraham that surely God will see to it that all of his promises to Abraham would come to pass. And now we come to the 25th chapter of the book of Genesis. And at first glance, the first half of this chapter appears to be dry and Nothing more than a number of names that are difficult to pronounce. It's okay for you to admit that. But when one examines this chapter with a keener eye, you will notice that we are observing the final days of Abraham, the man of faith, and also that we are seeing a foreshadow of the gospel. Over the, the past 15 chapters, which is a span of 100 years of the life of Abraham, we have observed God's blessing upon the life of Abraham. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to be the founder of the father of faith, or the founding father of faith for the people of God in this world. 
Paul identifies Abraham as the, the archetypal man of faith. And yet, we have seen Abraham often faltering, often tested. Uh, we have seen him soar to great heights. And we have also seen him sink to unimaginable lows and depths as he experienced sore trials in his life. The constant in all of Abraham's life is not so much his great faith, but rather the constant in Abraham's life is the great faithfulness of God. It is the grace of God that is really the banner over Abraham's life. Abraham is a man of faith, but he would have no faith if faith was not first given to him by God. The same is true for you and I. We take steps every single day. And don't we take steps of faith? Don't we every single day wonder in amazement how we are still walking toward the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? My friend, I say to you, it is not your great faith. But rather, it is the great faithfulness of your great God. God is keeping you, just as he has kept Abraham all of these years. In the 23rd chapter, we are told that Abraham's wife, Sarah, that she died. And she died at the age of 127 years old. She was buried in the cave that Abraham purchased, the cave at Machpelah, in the land of promise. And now Abraham's body... That body that has lived 175 years, that body is now ready to be joined to his wife in that very cave. But before he is joined to his wife, he will go on to live, one, he will go on to live 48 more years. And it is these final, final, final 48 years that we will focus our attention on this morning. Since we know that the scope of Scripture is Christ, we should ask the question... How is Christ being focused here in this 25th chapter? Or where is Christ in these 18 verses? And that is our task this morning. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we shall consider three points. Uh, number one, Abraham's final and full days. Abraham's final and full days. Verse 7, these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in the ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. These are the final days of Abraham, and it appears that they are peaceful days, the scriptures are presenting to us the twilight years of this man of faith. And they are years that we, I think, would all love to have as the final chapter of our lives. Don't you want the final chapter of your life to be a peaceful one? One in which you can say, I lived a full and satisfied life. It is interesting that there do not appear to be any more revelations from God in these final 48 years. There are no more striking events that take place in the life of the man of faith. It would appear that, that all is well with Abraham's soul. As we come to the opening verses of the chapter, we are immediately told something that, that might be striking for all of us. Abraham took another wife. Did that shock you when you first saw that? The very first verse, and Abraham took for himself Keturah as his wife whose name, uh, who also bore for him six sons, Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua, six sons. It is at this point that there is some debate over when exactly did Abraham take Keturah to be his wife? Was this during the time of, of Sarah, or was this when Sarah had passed on? Uh, let me say this, first of all, there is no way to know exactly when he took Keturah to be his wife. It is also important to note this. 
sometimes the scriptures will mention something that has already happened later in the story. The scriptures are, 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 are not always intending to be chronological in their order. Meaning the scriptures are not always trying to uh, nicely and neatly present to us one, two, three, the way things have always gone. All of that to say, it is very possible that Abraham did take Keturah to be his wife while Sarah was still living. It's possible. Uh, she would have been his concubine. As a matter of fact, verse 6 states that she was his concubine. A concubine is this. Uh, it was a type of servant to the master. Keturah, therefore, would have been someone that Abraham, if this is the case, he acquired as a type of servant. Also, a concubine would have intimacy with their master. She would bear children by their master. Uh, they would be of a lesser rank in terms of their status as wife, and their children also be, would be of a lesser rank in terms of what they inherited from their father. Again, all of that to say, there is no way to know if Abraham married Keturah before or after Sarah's death. But listen to this. We must be careful to note that Scripture is giving to us a descriptive note, not a prescriptive note. Meaning this, for a man to have more than one wife is a sin. All of the men said, good for you men. That, that, that was your cue, but... Uh, and it is a sin against God and God's order of for marriage. Therefore, the scriptures are not calling us to imitate Abraham's polygamy. But rather, the scriptures are noting the fact, the facts, and then also are pointing out that, that man is sinful as well. We might not see multiple wives in, in the life of Isaac, but we are going to see them in the life of other men of God. The scriptures are not telling us to imitate that, therefore. The scriptures are simply telling us what has taken place. Now, it's also possible that Abraham married Keturah after Sarah's death. Yeah. The placement of Keturah in the story and the six sons that she bore to Abraham, they seem to lend to the possibility that, that marriage, this marriage took place after Sarah's death. How's that? We are told that, that Isaac, in the very last verse of chapter 24, Isaac married Rebekah. And then in the very next verse, we see Abraham married Keturah. It, it may be possible that as Isaac takes, Keturah, takes Rebekah and they move to a different land, although they are still in the promised land, that Abraham in his loneliness takes another wife. It would be altogether possible. And, and also... It would seem strange that this woman bore to Abraham six sons. And none of these sons are mentioned up until this point. The narrative seems to emphasize that up until this point, that up until this point, there is only Isaac and Ishmael. We can easily, and you might be doing it along with me, or as I was studying, we can easily get caught up on this point. When did Abraham marry Keturah and miss the point that God has given Abraham six more sons, eight sons in all. Let's not get focused on some of these unknown details, but let's try to see what's the main point. The main point is this. The Lord God is again showing his faithfulness to Abraham in his promises. Now, how is this possible or, or how so? Listen to this. He promised Abraham that he would be the father of one nation? Oh, two nations. Many nations. That his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And, and up until this point, there is just two nations, really. There is just Isaac and there is Ishmael. And isn't it, isn't it amazing that at the very end of Abraham's life, we are told, and God gives Abraham, even in his old age... Six more sons. In the 48 years of Abraham's remaining life, we see that God is again producing more fruit in the life of Abraham. From these six sons of Ketor will come nations. Midian, who we will meet later, is connected to Moses. 
Abraham's first son, Ishmael, will be the father of 12 sons. And they will become princes over their tribes. And they will grow into more nations. And of course, from Isaac, we know, will come the nation, the children of Israel. God is surely faithful to his promises. And the scriptures describe Abraham's final days as as being filled with satisfaction. Another version says that his days were full and he gathered, was gathered to his people. Brothers and sisters, it is at this point that I'd like to allow our minds to slow down and to allow us to reflect for just a moment. What would you say about your life thus far if today you breathed your last? What would you say about your life thus far if today you breathed your last? Would you describe your life as being full and satisfied? Or would you describe your life as being empty and dissatisfied? And why? From one side or the other, full or empty, satisfied or dissatisfied, what would be the reasons why you would say so? One might say, I haven't thought about it. A young man that I spoke to yesterday, 22 years old, Enrique, said, I've got a lot, a lot of life to live still. I'm going to keep living and whatever comes, comes. And I said to him, Enrique, I'm looking at you as a 22-year-old young man. And I am now 40. And it was just like yesterday that I was your age. It was just like yesterday that I was saying what you're saying. And I know that when I get to the age of 60, it will be like yesterday that I was having this conversation with you. One may say, well, my life is not done yet. I can't really give a conclusion of, of, of all that it is. But we don't know when our life will be done, do we? The end will come sooner than you and I realize. You've seen some of the world's most shocking videos, haven't you? Where it seems just like that, someone's life was either taken or spared. And on that day, they had no idea that what came their way would be coming their way. Our brother Louis and his wife, uh, April, were able to share yesterday in Camp Owens. And they are speaking to young men and to young women, children even who would have not have known that they would be in that facility just a few years prior to that. And there they are. The Bible says in Psalm 90, and it is Moses who says, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. The man who numbers his days, the man who, as Samuel Rutherford says, anticipates his own death. They are seeing what is ahead they are not blind to the fact that their end will one day come. They are not ignoring the fact that death will soon be at their doorstep, and it could be today. In the 23rd chapter, we consider the reality of death. In this 25th chapter, we must simply ask, how are you dying? Are you dying full or are you dying empty? How are you faring in your life as you die? Is your life being spent looking back with regret and looking forward with fear? Are you presently chained by what, by what you can no longer change and being held in fear to what could possibly happen? Can I say to you young people, little ones who are sitting here this morning, no matter how young you are, or, or to the older ones, no matter how old you are, you must ask yourself this question. Are you ready to die? Are you living well? And are you dying well? The man who dies well does not look at yesterday only. And the, mind, the man who dies well does not only look at today, man and woman, boy and girl. The man who dies well looks at what lies ahead of him. 
They think soberly about tomorrow. They think clearly about their status before God. Little ones, I want to ask you a question this morning. If you were to die today, would you be welcomed into the kingdom of God? Or would you not be welcomed to the kingdom of God? And how do you know, little one? Parents, ask your children when you leave. What will happen to you when you die? It's not too uh, soon to bring the reality of death to bear upon the minds and consciences of your children. We all must consider the fact and be sincere of whether or not our trust is in Christ or whether our trust is in our own flesh. And we all must search for evidences in our own hearts that reveal whether or not we are those who are throwing ourselves at the mercy seat of God are those who are saying, no, I trust that I can be good enough. Edmund Barker said, every Christian has two great works to do in this world. To live well and to die well. We live well when all that we do, whether it be eating, whether it be drinking, and all of the things in between, whatever we do, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that we do to the glory of God. Can you say that about your lives today? Can you say that your conversations and all that you do, your relationships and all that they are, that they are aimed to magnify Christ and to give glory to God? If you can say no and, and not be concerned about that, then I beg you, I urge you, dear brother and sister, to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to give you a desire to glorify God in all that you do, to magnify Christ in all that you do, because it's not okay to say no and to be okay with it. Do you hear that? Ask yourself this. The Apostle Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or whether we drink, what, whatsoever we do, he says, do all to the glory of God. That is a command. And ask yourself, am I sincerely, am I faithfully, am I earnestly seeking to obey that, to glorify Christ in all that I do? Oh, and my dear brother and sister, if the answer is no, then fall on your knees and ask the Lord Jesus Christ, ask His Holy Spirit to give you a more earnest desire to glorify Christ in all that you do. That the whole of our lives will be aimed and directed toward Christ. That our speech may be aimed to magnify Christ. That our thoughts may be aimed to magnify Christ. That our relationships may be aimed to help others see Christ and magnify Him. And that it is reflected in our energies, in our finances, in the gifts that we have been given in this temporal world. That they are all aimed to magnify Christ. And if that, my dear friend, if that is how you're living... And you were dying well. How? Because you see that it is temporal. It is temporal. That, that you are looking unto something better. That you are looking unto something greater. That one day you will be joined to Christ. And what will be the epitaph? The inscription on your tombstone when you leave this place. What will this world testify about you? When you are no longer here, brothers and sisters, I pray that it reads something like the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. Can that be said about you today? In verse five and six, we see that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. That is, Isaac was the recipient, the primary recipient of all of Abraham's blessings of all of Abraham's inheritance the blessing was his but he gave gifts didn't he he gave gifts to his seven sons the sons of his concubines but then he sends them away from Isaac he gives them gifts but then he sends them away because he is protecting the promise he's ensuring that 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 there will be no disputes over whom the blessing belongs to it's Isaac's but here's another thing in terms of getting ready to die. He sets his house in order. How many uh, wives have left their husbands and how many husbands have left their wives in this world? 
carrying all of the burdens that they left for them to carry. How many husbands have passed away and left their wives in debt? How many wives have passed away and left their husbands in debt? How many houses have been out of order when someone has left this world? And Abraham is showing to us the wisdom and the care for your family by setting your house in order before you leave this place. You will be gone. You hopefully will move on to Abraham's land, to the land of promise, that heavenly land, that eternal land. But unless Christ delays his return, then your loved ones will still be here. And how will you care for them even when you're gone? Abraham is safeguarding the inheritance, the son of promise, avoiding conflict, again, setting his house in order. Are you prepared? Is your house in order? John Newton said, I'm packed, I'm sealed, and I'm waiting for the post. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, death is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. One man said, if you are not looking forward to death, then maybe it is because you have made so little progress in your Christian life. Are you ready? And have you placed your family in a position to where there will be no worries when they when you are gone? Abraham lived a full life. He died full of faith. He died full of patience. He died full of blessing. Uh, Faith builds a bridge across the gulf of death, doesn't it? In Christ, we escape death. We leave the land of dying and we enter the land of the living. He died full of faith. He died full of peace. He died in Christ. If we are in Christ, then we welcome death. We are ready for it. Uh, Watson said that the wheels of death may rattle and they they may make noise, but they carry us to Jesus. Therefore, he whose head is in heaven, you need not fear putting your feet in the grave because you are in Christ. Death is God's call from exile into your true home. And death will not shame us, will it? Death will not shame us if we are in Christ. There is no sting in death because the sting of death has been swallowed up by Christ. It's been removed by Christ. And let me ask you, is this your life? Can you say so much about the grave that lies ahead of you that you don't fear it? That you're not afraid of it and that it will not put you to shame? If so, then what was true about Abraham will also be true about you. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, verse 8. An old man, satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Abraham died at at a ripe old age, just as God promised him. God promised him when he initially called him that he would live to be an old man. But then he is gathered to his people. What people? We are told that he was buried in the cave of Machpelah. Who was in the cave? There is not people in the cave. There's a person in the cave. But there are not people in the cave. The scriptures do not say he was gathered to one person, but to a people. Who are these people? My dear brothers and sisters, it is one of those Old Testament hints and one of those Old Testament proclamations of the life after this life. I said to the young man yesterday, Enrique, Enrique, when it's all over, you believe in heaven and you believe in hell. Where will your life be after you live this life? And he says, I don't know. Whatever God decides. And I said, but you don't, you don't want to take that chance, my dear friend. You don't want to say whatever God decides because you can right now make a decision of where you will decide to live. You're being called right now to an eternal land. What will you do, Enrique? He was gathered to his people. To whom will you be gathered when you die? 
What people will you be gathered to when you die? Abraham was gathered to a family. To a covenant community. Abraham was gathered to a community of faith. Abraham was, was gathered to those who died in faith. Those who died believing in a promise that they did not yet see, but believed in. Our brother Bobby said this morning, oh, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet they believe. Hebrews 11 tells us that they are th these people. They are those who died having seen promises of God from afar. Imagine that. Seeing something delightful from afar. You've done that, haven't you? When you have been traveling long distances, and then when you almost are arriving at your destination, and you can see that destination, you can see you're almost there. And there is an anticipation in your heart. There is a joy in your soul that there it is. I, I am not there, but I'm there. I'm not out of the car yet, but blessed be to God, it's right there. We know that when we see the waters of the Pacific Ocean, as we are Californians, when we are driving to the beach and you begin to smell the air is different. The, the, the air feels different. It's now sticky and moist and some of your curly hairs, uh, uh, my, like my wife, they all of a sudden begin to curl up because now the mist of the waters are near you. And then you see the blue, that, that, that horizon that seems to never end of water. And you know I'm here. Imagine those who in the Old Testament did not get to see Christ, but they heard of Christ and they believed in Christ, but yet in the distance they could see him. They believed, not uh, seeing him presently, but seeing him from a distance, and they welcomed that promise. And they also confessed that they were exiles and strangers on this earth. It was those people, those people to whom Abraham was joined to, those people who were looking unto the same city that Abraham was looking unto. Those people who were looking for that city whose builder and designer is God. Where God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Those of you who are in our uh, men's race, you remember that city that we're talking about. That city that has come down to earth. It is into that city that those people were drawn to and will be joined to. And it is there where Abraham lives in and among those people. He wasn't gathered to nothingness. He, he wasn't just going to lay in his grave. No. He was gathered to a reunion. A family reunion. A reunion of faith. A reunion of the children of God. And you can think of those who have left this earth. Whose faith was in Christ. They were joined to. And you will one day hopefully be joined to those people. And there will be a great family reunion one day. Won't there be? He was joined to Adam. He was joined to Abel. He was joined to Seth, to Enosh, to righteous Enoch, to Noah, to Shem, to his beloved wife who believed the same faith that he believed in. But more spectacularly, he was joined to the lover of his soul, the one in whom his faith was founded upon, the one whom he saw from a distance and was very glad he was joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, the skull-crushing seed of the woman. When we all die, we will be gathered to our own people. We will either be gathered to the people of faith, or we will be gathered to the seed of the serpent. For some, that is joyously true. And for others, that is horror, horrifically true, horrifyingly true. If you are in Christ, you have a divine appointment. You have a reunion and its invitation in Emmanuel's land. And they are awaiting you. Are you dying well? We know we will die. Are you dying well? I pray to God you are. Secondly, Ishmael's end. Verse 9, Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Did you see that? I wonder if you can imagine this scene. 
Who are the two names that have just been mentioned? Isaac and Ishmael. We've not seen these two names coupled together for a few chapters. As a matter of fact, it could be up to maybe 60 years that these two individuals have seen each other. It's possible. And now there they are together to bury their father. The last time that they saw one another, Isaac or Ishmael was a teenager and Isaac was but a little boy. The last time that they saw each other, Ishmael was being sent away from Abraham's family and almost died in the desert. And Isaac was being celebrated as the son of promise at a christening party. I wonder what Ishmael first thought of when he saw Isaac once again after almost 60 years. Maybe that's the young man, my little half-brother. That is the reason why I almost died in the desert. There's my father's most privileged son, the son who took away the love from my father for me. We must remember Abraham truly loved Ishmael. Matter of fact, Abraham pleaded with the Lord that he would allow Ishmael to be the son of promise. You might remember this. To receive the blessing that God had promised Abraham, oh Lord, that it might be uh, given to Ishmael. But God rejected Abraham's request. Because the promises of God cannot be achieved by the works of the flesh. And, and Ishmael was a product of the flesh. Ishmael was a product of, of man's efforts. But Isaac was a result of man's faith. The Apostle Paul makes this point and, and as an analogy in Galatians chapter 4 that we who trust in Christ are the children of promise. But the ones who trust in the works of the law are the children of the bondwoman. If you are a child of faith, then you are a, a relative of Isaac. If you are one who trusts in yourself, then you are a relative of Ishmael. Did you notice even how Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, how he positions the two names? Look in your Bible, verse 9. Whose name comes first? Who's the older one? Who's the one that really matters? The one that really matters is always positioned first. Because Moses is, again, doubling down. Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the child of prominence, not Ishmael. Abraham truly loved Ishmael. And Ishmael truly loved his father, Abraham. And now here they are. Listen to this. For the moment and possibly for the last time, at peace with one another. To bury their beloved father. Uh, this is going to sound like a silly example. It just came to my mind. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I will say it. Sato and Mr. Miyagi. Karate Kid Part 2 coming together to bury their father. And Sato says to Mr. Miyagi, we have peace today for the sake of our father. But tomorrow. Tomorrow is another day. We can say this confidently because the scriptures will continue to do this. That there will be war and battling between these two nations even until today. Look at verse 12. Now these are the records of the genealogies or generations of Ishmael. Do you see that phrase? And in your Bible it might be italicized. Do you see that? Now, these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. This phrase, these are the generations, that has been said ten times in the scriptures. Initially, it was said in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. Now, these are the generations of the earth or of creation. And it was leading to Adam, which Adam, these are the generations of Adam. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. Genesis 6, 9. Genesis 10, 1. Now, these are the generations Genesis 11.10, now these are the generations. Genesis 11.27, and now Genesis 25.12, now these are the generations. Most of the generations have covered a great span of people. But would you notice how much time Scripture takes up to mention the generations of Ishmael? Look at your Bible real quick. 
These are the generations of Ishmael. Seven verses. While the next, these are the generations, will be the generations of Isaac. And it will cover ten and a half chapters. For Ishmael, seven verses. And then he is done. For Isaac, ten and a half verses. And it will continue with his sons up into Joseph. Why? Again, the Bible is making a distinction. And, and for those of you who ever have any issues with this particular topic, this is helpful. The Bible is making a distinction between the elect of God and the non-elect of God. Between the righteous seed of the women of the woman and the unrighteous seed of the serpent. The line through which the Messiah will come and the line through which the Messiah will not come. We will see this theme of election, especially next week in the birth of Jacob and Esau. But Isaac was the elect of God. Ishmael was not. It's amazing to me. I am marvel. Each time when I speak to someone who denies the doctrine of sovereign election and cannot see the obvious electing hand of God all throughout the scriptures, when someone says, tell me where the Bible says that, well, let's go to the book of Genesis. Let's start with maybe Cain and Abel. Then let's work our way all the way through Romans chapter 9. And if we cannot find at least 10 examples of God choosing someone and not choosing someone, I'll deny the doctrine altogether. You can't get but 10 chapters into the Bible without finding at least 10 of the elect and who are not. Go to Genesis chapter 4 and 5. Not right now, but in your own time. You'll see all of those who are of the seed of Cain, not elect from God. Go to then Genesis chapter 5. And all those who are of the seed of the woman who are elect of God. There's your 10. The Bible is making this painstakingly clear. We will see again next week, but Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 9 that God chooses even before a man can do good or evil. He chose Jacob and Esau, Jacob over Esau, before Jacob or Esau could ever do anything good or disqualify them from being chosen by God. According to God's eternal goodwill and pleasure, he has sovereignly chosen those who will receive his special saving electing grace and those whom he will righteously choose to pass over. Doesn't sound right, but he's under no obligation to give a special grace to anyone, especially to a rebel has, who has rebelled against his righteous commands. In his loving kindness, God has graciously given grace to those whom he has chosen to freely give grace to. Ishmael was not chosen by God. And yet, God chose, listen to this, to be kind to Ishmael. Not chosen by God, but yet at the same time, God chooses to be kind to Ishmael. How so? In Genesis chapter 17, God promises a promise to Abraham to Ishmael on Abraham's behalf. Look at chapter 17, verse 20. As for Ishmael, because Abraham is pleading, give the blessing to Ishmael. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes. And I will make him into a great nation. God has not promised to save Ishmael, but rather God has promised that he will bless him. And how will he bless him? He will bless him with many sons. He will bless him to the point that his, from his sons will become a great nation. He is kind. Although God has not chosen to save Ishmael, he has chosen to be kind to Ishmael in this temporal world. He gives to his creation, even those, listen to this, even those who deny him, he gives to his creation the gift of living in this world. Breathing his air. Enjoying good food. Buying property in his world. These are haters of God. These are deniers of Christ. They are blasphemers and children of the devil. And yet, they are allowed to prosper in this life. It is their best life now. God has allowed them to enjoy the joys of living in this world for a time. And he chooses to be kind to Ishmael. 
Don't be surprised when you see the wicked prosper. Don't be surprised when the wicked are flaunting their fabulous life on Instagram or Facebook or whatever other social media there, there, there is. They have been allowed for a time to enjoy the pleasures of this world, and there are many. They've been given intelligence by God. They've been given strength by God. And for a time in this world, they will prosper. Don't be envious of them. Because that time is short-lived. They will live a wonderful, joyful life in this world. You will live a fuller and more enjoyable and eternal life in the eternal life to come. Don't be envious of the wicked when they prosper. Don't allow your eyes to become green with envy. Fix your eyes upon Christ. You have greater riches than they do. Greater wealth than they do. Buy land, sure. Make sure that your family is taken care of, sure. But don't put your hope in it. God promised to make a nation out of Ishmael. Twelve clans or tribes would come from Ishmael. There would also come from Isaac. Twelve tribes. And it is to contrast that there is 12 tribes from Ishmael and there is 12 tribes from Isaac, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, and they will be in enmity. Just as God promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And we have this, this final word about Ishmael in verse 18. Listen to what it says. He settled in defiance of all of his relatives. Brothers and sisters, we spoke in our previous point of the epitaph. That is the inscription that will be on your tombstone. Here is Ishmael's. On his tombstone it is written. He settled in defiance. Of all of his relatives. He did not die well. Lived well. In the sense that he lived well. In terms of the world's idea of what well is. But according to God's standards. He did not live well and he did not die well. This sets the stage for the conflict that will take place between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. And this is also fulfillment of yet another promise from God, this time to Hagar, which is this, saying to her about her son, he will be a, a wild donkey of a man. That Ishmael, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all of his brothers. And isn't that surely the case at the end of Ishmael's life? And isn't that surely the case today? Ishmael was blessed. Listen to this in closing. But he was a pool of blessing. Whereas Isaac would be a river of blessing that would flow to the nations. Which leads us to our third and final point. The light to the nations. Brothers and sisters, in verses 2 and 4, go ahead and just look at it, but we're not going to read it. This may seem like, why all of these names? They, they enter the story, and then they kind of exit the story just as quickly as they entered it. Let's just move on. It may be one of those chapters that as we read it, we say, ah, skip that chapter, can't pronounce the names anyways. Right? Brothers and sisters, it may not be immediately present, but these names are pointing us forward toward the wonders of the gospel. How? We've all made the point that the sons of Abraham represent the nation that will come from Abraham as, a, as promised by God. The, the sons of Abraham, all eight of them, they represent nations that will come from him. But there's another promise from God, isn't there? In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, and in you... All the nations or all the families of the earth will be blessed. It, it is that promise from God that a seed would come from Abraham, the promised seed of the woman who in his doing and dying would redeem all those whom he came to save from the curse of sin. And we all say, Amen. Yeah, Pastor, okay. What does that have to do with this particular passage? Let's turn to Isaiah. Chapter 60. And you need to see this. Isaiah chapter 60. 
Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 1. Listen to the prophet. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and the deep darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Listen to this. Look here for a second. The, the prophet foresees the day when those who are walking in darkness will be exposed to a great light. Have you heard that before? In chapter 9 and verse 2, the prophet makes this same prophecy saying the people walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Well, then we go to the, the New Testament and the Apostle Matthew looks back upon this prophecy of Isaiah and sees that prophecy fulfilled in Christ in Matthew chapter four. When Christ goes to the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, Isaiah foresees this. Matthew looks back at this and then sees Christ when Christ goes to those regions as light coming to those dark places. Zebulun and Naphtali were regions that were brought into contempt. They, the people of that day saw those people living in those nations as walking, sitting, and dwelling in darkness until Christ, in His mercy and in His grace, Christ, who is the light of the world, decides to go to those far-off regions and light has come to those dark places. The prophet Isaiah sees nations being drawn to that light. The light of Christ. Christ would draw sons and daughters from afar. They would be gathered into the arms of Christ. Isaiah says, then they will see and be radiant. And your heart will, will thrill and rejoice. Because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. It's a wonderful vision. It's a vision of nations being rescued from their darkness the darkness of sin and being brought into the wonder of God's gracious light. But will you notice what Isaiah says in verse 5 of chapter 60? Look at that real quick. A multitude of camels will cover you. Listen to what it says. Look at what he says. The young camels of Midian and Epa. Well, we haven't seen these... We haven't seen these names since Genesis chapter 25. It's those names that we, we skipped right over. So I can't pronounce it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'll move on. And then now here they are in Isaiah's wonderful prophecy saying, a multitude of camels will cover you. They are the young camels or the young ones of Midian. They are the young ones of Epa. Who are they? Who's Midian? Midian is the son of Abraham. The one who was sent away. Who was Epa, he's the grandson of Abraham. Midian is sent away. He was not to receive the physical inheritance of the blessings of Abraham. But Isaiah looks forward to the day when Midian and the son of and his son Epa will partake in the spiritual blessings of Abraham. That though they be sent away from the physical land, that they will one day be gathered to Abraham's spiritual land. Do you see this? That they will one day be gathered. By Abraham's greater son, the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet is, is not done. Verse 6, all those who come from Sheba will come. They will bring gold, frankincense. They will bear good news, newses of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you and the rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. Do you see that? Who's Sheba? The grandson of Abraham. Who's Nebaioth? He is Ishmael's firstborn son. Who's Kedar? Ishmael's secondborn son. Brothers and sisters, do you see what the prophet is proclaiming? That, that these who were driven away from the promise of for a time that there will be a time when these nations, those who were sent away, 
they will be brought back by the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will turn from their sin. They will see their need for Christ. They will trust in him just as Abraham, their father, trusted in him. They will be saved. For God promises Abraham, in you, Abraham, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Verse 7 says of Isaiah, they will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my, my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their lattice? Surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come first to, to bring your sons from afar. Their silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. When the light of the gospel shines upon these sons from afar. When the light, like the morning sun that stretches across the horizon, touches those who walk in darkness, they will come to that light and they will be saved. They will be welcomed to the house of God and their presence will make his house beautiful. I don't know if you realize what's being said this morning. Here's why you don't, here's why you're not, here's why your eyes have not sparked yet. Because the beauty of this house is not the streets paved with gold. It's that God has drawn people from every nation, tribe, and tongue into the presence of the king. Here, now here's, here's where, where you're saying, and dear brothers and sisters, these names in chapter 25 are not meaningless. They represent the names of all of those who will place their faith in Christ, though they are not Jews. For Paul says, if you are Christ, or if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs to the promise. Listen, the gospel promise is that Abraham's seed, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, that in him all those... All those nations who forsake their own attempts to be right before God and trust in the active and passive obedience in Christ of Christ in his life and in his death, that he's been raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, that, that if you trust in that, you will be saved. That if you repent of your sins, place your faith in him, that you will one day dwell in that house that God is describing in the book of Isaiah, That Isaac is set apart. And it's, it's just for a particular people, it seems like, for a time. And the nations are sent away. But there is going to be a day when those names are reconciled to God. Therefore, Midian, Epa, Sheba, Kedar, Nabioth. That's you. That's me. We're reading through these names and saying, don't care about them. That's your name. You're a, some of you are, are Hispanic, Mexican. Some of you are African-American. Some of you are, are African by descent. Asian by descent. This is you. You're reading of nations who are being drawn by the light of the gospel. That's your name there. Where Midian's name is, Anthony. Where Epa's name is, Doreen. Where Sheba's name is, Tony. Moses. Brothers and sisters, these names point to all of those who are not by nature or not by physical descent children of Abraham, but by faith in Christ who have been made children of Abraham. Those who were initially sent away, Christ in his mercy and his grace have been drawn near. He calls those who are not spiritual sons of Abraham, spiritual sons of Abraham. He who... He will draw those who were sent away near to their true father, not Abraham, to Christ. And all history is leading to the conclusion of all of that. 
to the day when Abraham and all of his children will gather around that light and worship God. And the house of God will be beautiful because all of his children are there. Don't you love it, parents, when all your kids are there? There's a joy, there's a, there's a pride when your kids are there with you. This will be the case for all of us when we are gathered into our Father's house. We are those who have trusted in Christ. We've repented of our sins. And one day we together will dwell in the house of God. The nations were sent away so that one day through the proclamation of the gospel on the day of Pentecost, the nations would hear the gospel and be brought back to Christ. And from there, that gospel would spread, that, that light of the brightness of Christ would spread even to the far reaches of where we are today. Never be amazed at the fact that you are a child of God. That he has grafted you into his family. Rejoice, for salvation has come to your house. Let us pray.